0: Uh, this morning, uh, we're, we're got the, the message is entitled, and you would be able to see it if it was actually up there, The Ancient Boundary Stones. And we're going to be looking at Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 28. And, uh, and I hope that by the time we're done, you're going to have a real sense for where this year is going. That's what the first Sunday of the year always intends to do. Last week, Brian McKenzie walked us through 2023 and the things that we learned there. And, and those things are things that we're going to be building on as we, uh, as we take on this year. We're going to be studying the book of Genesis. And um, I want to share this morning some of the things that we'll be discovering in the book of Genesis as we go. Um, we've come to the end of another year. And, and I keep people, he, hearing people say where did 2023 go? How many are feeling that way? Where did 2023 go? And I can sympathize with their concern about quickly, about how quickly time is passing. And I perhaps have an advantage when it comes to understanding how they feel. And I say that because as some of us here this morning know, the older you get, the faster time passes. I don't know if you're aware of that, so when folks complain that they don't know where 2023 went, I have to face the fact that I can't be very helpful for them because I'm still trying to figure out where 2010 went. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's gone, and I, I'm not going to get it back. And the truth is, like it or not, it's, it's a new year. Whether we're ready for it or not, whether we like it or not, it's a new year. And I've been thinking that it might be a good idea to get ready for 2024 instead of just sitting here complaining that it's here too soon. Uh, But that leaves me wondering, just how do you get ready for the part of the year that hasn't happened yet? Well, in Old Testament times, there were prophets. There were prophets who spoke to the people and told them what was going to happen so that they could both mentally and physically get ready for what was to come. Of course, the people of the Old Testament had a bad habit of not listening to the prophets. So much of the time, they were not, not only not ready... But they weren't prepared because they, despite ample warnings from the prophets of their day, they just didn't listen and as we saw over Christmas, it, it doesn't seem to, it didn't seem to matter whether the prophecies had to do with something that that would cause doom and gloom or something that was going to be a, a true joy to all people. people just didn't heed those prophecies and I don't mean to be unkind, but just by virtue of what what an who we are as human beings, we don't seem disposed to be moved to the point of change by prophecies. But I've been thinking, maybe it would be worthwhile our first Sunday of 2024 to talk today about where we'll be going in God's Word this year. Uh, There's seven things that I want you to write down, um, and because we don't have the PowerPoint, and maybe that's the virtue of that, Maybe you'll go home with this list, but there's seven things that I want you to write down, and I'll tell you what each of them are as we go. Uh, I, I just believe that if we know where we're going, perhaps we'll be more inclined to be ready to learn the various lessons that God will teach us this year. And then perhaps, when we get to the end of this year, we can go over this message again with an actual working PowerPoint on the last Sunday of 2024. And then we can test whether or not we learn from god's word over the 12 months that uh, that will have passed by that time and and i mean if we do it right i could even preview the test questions for you right now and that's why you're going to want to write this down because it will be on the exam but but uh, if, if if we if we just try to look ahead prophetically i don't think it's going to profit us i'd I, I think if we do it this way, if you write it down, then we'll be able to look back historically and actually test, see if we learned the lessons that, that God taught us in 2024. Uh, because we'll be able to look at our lives and compare it against that list and, and then reflect the f- and, and see if our lives actually reflect the fact that we learned the truth that God taught us. In other words, we can test at that point to see if we got out of the year what God put into it. That's one of the prayers that Faith and I pray when we bow our heads at breakfast and, and thank God for the meal. We ask God for the wisdom to get out of the day what he has put into it, because we know he has a plan for today. He has something for us to do, some way for us to reach out. And, and I can't speak for you, but for myself, I, I'd rather grow from year to year than, than have to learn the same lessons over and over again every year. And, and I hope that's something that you want as well. If we're committed together to that kind of change, then I think that we need a story. Of course, you knew I was going to say that from God's Word. A story about someone who was facing significant change in his life. In fact, his life is about to spin out of control in ways that he never would have guessed. The story has to do with a man named Moses. And I need to tell you that what's about to happen to him in this story will happen to prepare him for something that would happen to him years later later in his life. The story begins a uh, a long time before he got to that moment that that would change him to his very core. By way of background, Moses had grown up in Pharaoh's household. But he had to run away and hide because of a poor choice that he had made. And perhaps some of us have had similar experiences. Now, we can't always run away when we make a poor or foolish choice, but that doesn't mean that we haven't wanted to run away and hide At times, as the story begins, Moses is living on the far side of the desert, and he's more or less hiding from Pharaoh and his former Egyptian friends and associates. With that background, this is the story from God's Word from Exodus chapter 3. Moses was married by this time and was working as a hired shepherd for his father-in-law, a man named Jethro. He traveled into the wilderness with this flock that he, was pa- that he was taking care of and was pasturing them very near Mount Horeb, a place known as the Mountain of God and also called Mount Sinai. You may recognize that name. The angel of the Lord, a name that we use to describe the invisible God when he chooses to make himself visible in some way. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses as an intensely bright flame in the middle of a small tree. And Moses, being curious, watched the flame for a few minutes and noticed that the little tree wasn't being consumed by the flames. This made him intensely curious, naturally. So he said to himself, I'm going to get closer and, and, and look at this to see if I can figure it out, Moses said to himself. God, of course, noticed that Moses was, was coming closer to the bush and called out to Moses from within that bush. Moses. Moses. Moses quickly stopped and responded. I'm right here, he said. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Moses stopped dead in his tracks and took off his sandals. God spoke again. I'm the God of your ancestors. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard God say that, he raised his hands and covered his face because he was afraid to look at the flame now that he understood that God was revealing himself in the fire. God continued, I've seen the misery of my people who are living in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So, God said, I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. And I have a plan to bring them into a good and spacious land where they'll be able to grow more than enough food to provide for themselves. This land presently belongs to other people, but this is the land that I promised to give Abraham and his descendants. I know that my people are being oppressed and are crying out in their oppression, and that's why I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people leave Egypt. (laughs) This brought a question to Moses' mind. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and tell him to do anything, let alone tell him to let the Israelites go? God reassured Moses, I will be with you, he said, and, and you will understand that I have sent you when I bring you back here to this very mountain along with all my people from Egypt. When you arrive back here with them, you will worship me on this mountain. Now Moses had a different question. Really intriguing question. Suppose I do what you've told me to do. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of our ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What am I going to tell them? Because I, I really don't know your name. Then God said to Moses, I am who I am. Tell the Israelites this. I am has sent me to you. Then God said, tell the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. My name is Yahweh, God said, and that is what you were to call me from one generation to the next. And that is the story from God's word. Moses has just met God. And God's made it clear to him that he's not met a different God from the God that Abraham met. He has only experienced God in a different way than Abraham experienced him. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph knew God by the name Elohim. But as Moses meets him for the first time, God reveals himself by another name. And when Moses asks God his name, God responds by telling Moses that his name is Yahweh. There are hundreds of names and combined names that God uses for himself in the scripture. And each new name reveals another facet of God's character. So as we've said, Moses is not meeting a new God. Please understand this. Moses is not meeting a new God. He is meeting God in a new way. He's seeing God from a different angle and learning new things about God as he does. This past year, has been somewhat like that for us, and, and I'm saying that because we perhaps haven't seen any burning bushes, but we have managed to see God from quite a few different angles over the past year, and I hope as a consequence of that, that, that you understand things about God now that you didn't understand as we began 2023. What I mean is, our, our studies in First and Second Timothy and Ruth are over, and we won't likely be learning anything new from those passages in 2024. We are, however, going to wade into the depths of Genesis in the year to come. And just so you can be prepared, I can tell you that every tree, listen, every tree that bears fruit and every flower that blooms in the New Testament started out as a seedling and grew from a seed that's planted in Genesis. Right there in Genesis. So that's what you can anticipate, but knowing what to anticipate may not actually prepare you for what's coming. And since this is the first Sunday of 2024, I thought that it might be a good idea if we put it into a PowerPoint, some of the basic stuff. That's not it. But I thought it would be a good idea if we put it into a PowerPoint. And since we can't do that, I think it's a good idea if you put it in a notebook or a piece of paper and you can write down this list. And as I've already mentioned, we can look at this PowerPoint again at the end of 2024 and see if we've learned what God taught us during the year. You know, there's an old adage that describes the pattern that a teacher should use whenever he or she is teaching. There's no way to be sure where the adage came from, but stating it quite simply, it says, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. So I want to use the rest of the time that I have today to tell you what we're going to tell you as we study the book of Genesis together this year. That way you can take a few notes today that might prepare you for what you'll be hearing during the next 12 or so months of 2024. And we'll do that with the hopes of carrying what we learned this year into next year, so that just as we're building this year on last year, we'll be able to build next year on this year. And you're your life will continue to change. Your understanding of God will continue to grow. And, if, that's, and if, we, if, we, if that happens, then we'll be able to visit new places next year. So what do you say? Should, should we do this? Should we just kind of go through what Please say yes, because <laughs> already, the, I mean, this is a disaster already, and I don't want the notes that I've prepared to not mean anything at all by the time we're done. So take out a piece of paper, uh, get a pen, uh, uh, or a pen and, and poke yourself and you can write in blood if you need to, but let's start to build our list of truths that we'll anticipate that God will teach us. First of all, and you want to write this down, God doesn't leave us in the dark. First of all, God doesn't, does not leave us in the dark. One of the first things that we'll learn about God in 2024 is that God created light first of all. That was the first thing that he did. In fact, The fact that God won't leave us in the dark is one of the first things that we learn about God in His Word, anywhere in His Word. We're going to notice as we make our way through Genesis that the Bible doesn't begin with arguments for God's existence. It doesn't begin by trying to convince us that God exists. Instead, the Bible begins with the simple words, in the beginning, God created. That's simplicity. And if we embrace the idea that God created, that will help us understand God a whole lot better. For starters, we will see that the first thing that God created was light. So he didn't leave the universe in dark, and that'll be the first hint that he never leaves his people in the dark either. And just some quick examples to show you what I mean by that. God is going to warn Adam and Eve about a tree that is in the center of the garden and tell them not to eat the fruit that comes from that tree. He's shedding light on that tree. Shortly after that, God will warn a man named Cain about the sin that's hidden in his heart. God will point light at the sin that's in Cain's heart and advise Cain how he can avoid being overcome by that sin that's lodged there. Then God will warn Noah and his family about the flood and tell them how they can escape (coughs) the judgment of the flood and survive. After that, God's going to warn Lot and his family about the fire that will soon fall on Sodom and tell them how they can escape the judgment that's to come. In fact, each and every one of the stories we'll tell from Genesis will recount someone who has been living in the darkness and then met God who shined His light into their lives. And we'll see that the people God warns, hear this, the people that God warns will either choose to take God at His word or choose to ignore Him. There's really only two opportunities, two, Two ways that you can respond to the light that God shines in your life. And as we make our way through Genesis, through those stories in Genesis about the light and either taking God at his word or not taking God at his word, you and I will have opportunities to respond to the light that God will be shining in our lives as we study Genesis. You'll be able to test whether or not it's important to you to to respond to the light that God is shining in your life. It amazes me in my own life how often I ignore that light when God turns it on. It amazes me how many of the people that I know ignore that light when God turns it on. And we'll try to do that as practically as we can. It's not going to be this this deep spiritual exercise because we're going to be dealing with real people who dealt with the real God in real ways or a real God who dealt with real people in real ways. Because God shines His light on the simplest things in my life. He really, truly does. But I have to learn to listen to God and take Him at His word and heed His warnings. Second thing, second important lesson, you want to write this down. It will be on the quiz. The second important lesson that Genesis is going to teach us is that God is in charge. God is in charge you ever found yourself dropped into a chaotic situation where everything seems to be going wrong and nothing seems to be going according to plan? Well, whenever we're in situations like that and we look around us and see the mess, we sometimes ask the question, who's in charge around here? Isn't that the first thing you want to know when everything is going wrong? Who's in charge around here? For example, dads, have you ever come home from the office or from a trip and found your kids (laughs) <laughs> creating chaos in the front yard or maybe somewhere in the house just as you've walked in. You know, like, like, like maybe they're real little and you come home from work and, and find them in the front yard with the hose running. They're dressed in just their underwear and socks and having a royal mud fight, and the mud has gotten all over them and, and any vehicles that are parked in the driveway. So as you pull up in the car, you get out of the car, and as you get out of the car, you're hit square in the chest by this bit of muck that's just come your way, uh, this muck that they're throwing. And, uh, and, and I, I just wondered if anything like that has ever happened to you. I didn't want you to tell on your wife. But dads, at moments like that, dads always ask the same question. Where's your mother? <laughs> Because he suspects that mom is supposed to be in charge, and this chaos is happening under her rule, I guess. And you know as well as I do that you're not asking that question because you want to speak powerfully into the chaos. You're asking that question because depending on where mom is, you want to know if you can get away with chucking some mud back at the kids. You know, Because this could be fun for just a little while until, well, the person who's actually in charge shows up. I think the real reason that chaos invades our lives comes from the fact, listen to me, that being in charge and knowing what's going on may not be the same thing. In fact, it's kind of like the sign that we have outside the window of the office over there. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It says, do you want to speak to the man who is in charge or to the woman who knows what's going on? All that to say that in some ways, we only seem to be concerned about who's in charge when it seems that no one. ...is in charge. And I, for one, am glad to be able to say... ...that when it comes to both the vastness of the universe... ...and the smallness of my life... ...God is both in charge... ...and knows what's going on. As we study the book of Genesis... ...we'll learn to take both of those things by faith. Because we'll learn that... ...even when your life seems to be spinning... ...completely out of control... ...God is still in charge... And the truth is, I think sometimes we like to think that we're in charge. I like to think that I'm in charge. But Genesis is going to show me that any and all authority that I have has been shared with me by God Himself. So I can yurtle the turtle it and convince myself that I am ruler of all that I see, but that will ultimately bring chaos into my life. And that means. That my best shot in life comes from recognizing that since God is in charge of me, he is also ultimately in charge of everyone who thinks that I am in charge. I mean, think about it. People who are in business seem to want to make it clear who's in charge in their business, right? That's the first thing that, that you discover if you're going to do business with somebody. And if you think about it, if you're working with a business, it's easy to tell who's in charge by looking for your name at that business. If your name is on the building, you're in charge. And if your name is on something on your desk, then you're in charge of some things, but but not everything. But (laughs) if your name is on your shirt, you're probably not in charge at all. I mean, that's just the way it works in the typical business. That may be how things work at an office, but... How do they work in the universe? Well, this year in Genesis, we'll see that God made Adam, and then God made Eve for Adam. And from that, we'll conclude that God is the maker and therefore the owner of people. So that puts him in charge. To put it simply, God is everywhere, and everywhere God is, God is in charge. God is in this room this morning. And that means that he's in charge here this morning. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm submitting to Him this morning, but it does mean that I should submit to Him every time I stand up in front of you because I'm not in charge here today. And that's why we always remind you that after you hear us teach from God's Word here in this church, you should make it a point to pick up God's Word and study it for yourself so that you can know whether or not we have been both truthful and accurate as we've handled God's word, as we teach here on a Sunday morning. So the story of Adam and Eve will teach us, among other things, that God is the maker and owner of people, and that means that his authority over us is absolute. And then later in Genesis, we'll see God choose Abraham and tell him to to journey to Canaan, and that story will help us to see that God was in charge in the life of the patriarch Abraham. And then God will choose Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and he will have a plan and purpose for each and every one of them as well. So that means that Genesis will teach us that no matter who you are. God is ultimately in charge in your life. And that means that he has a plan and a purpose for you as well. But there is a caveat here. Even though in Genesis God will choose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. That, didn't, that won't necessarily mean that they'll live perfect lives. One of the things about the patriarchs that's so beautiful is that they will allow God to be in charge. And that's going to change everything. And we'll have the chance to see how that works out for them and to decide whether maybe or not we would want to allow God to be in charge in our lives. Because the truth is, listen to me, God has all the authority, all the power, and all of the wealth to do a hostile takeover in your life but He won't do a hostile takeover in your life. Instead, He will wait for you to surrender to Him, just like He did with Abraham and the gang. The third lesson, and this is one you're going to want to write down that we'll learn as we make our way through Genesis, is that we're a mess. We're a mess. Thomas Harris, the guy who was the board director of the Transactional Analysis Association, wrote a book entitled... I'm okay, you're okay. And I, there's, in theory, there's a picture of it right up there on the screen. I'm okay, you're okay. And I have to admit that that's a lovely thought. But I also have to admit that the idea that we're all okay is really very compelling, but it isn't true. It isn't accurate. And I say that because as we study Genesis, we'll see that ultimately Adam wasn't okay. Because God will make one simple rule for Adam, and Adam is going to break that one simple rule. And that's not okay. God will give Cain one simple instruction, and Cain will ignore it. As we study Genesis, we're going to see that most people won't get into the ark. We'll see that only four people are going to escape from Sodom. And one of those won't get home safely because she will ignore and disobey the one simple command that she not look back. Esau will stand to inherit the promises that God gave to Abraham, but Esau will give up his birthright for a very foolish reason. In Genesis, we'll see Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, which is not something an okay brother would do just in case you're considering that option for yourself this morning. So it would be wonderful to be able to say, I'm okay, you're okay, because we'd be able to save one another's feelings if we could say that. Wouldn't that be nice? Oh, I'm okay, you're okay. Let's just all pretend that that's true and move on. But if I say that this morning, I'll soon have to admit that I was neither truthful nor accurate. And in the spirit of truthfulness and accuracy... Genesis is not going to spare our feelings. That's not what that book will do. Instead, it will reveal our flaws and give us a chance to get things right and make things right in the future. And that leads us directly to the fourth thing that you should write down, the fourth truth that Genesis will reveal to us this year. This one's a little longer. My efforts at fixing my mess and my own strength will always fall short. My efforts at Fixing my mess and my own strength will always fall short. And this failure to fix my problems on my own becomes most glaringly obvious during this time of the year, because we know, we all know, how little we change despite making the best New Year's resolutions. The failure to be able to make things right by our own efforts will come up over and over as we study in Genesis this year. Adam and Eve will make clothes of leaves to cover their nakedness, even though clothes made from leaves are way too scratchy and way too temporary. The people of Babel will build a tower with the hopes of reaching heaven and not being separated from one another before they complete it. Their language differences will scatter them all over the earth. In Genesis this year, we'll learn that Abraham's decision to have a child through Hagar will open the door to one of the most pressing and chaotic situations we face today in the 21st century. In Genesis, we'll see Jacob steal a blessing and turn his life upside down once he possesses the blessing. And how is learning those stories going to impact our lives? What will we discover after we discover that we can't fix ourselves? Well, to answer that question, all we'd have to do is go to the nearest bookstore and look through the books on the, on the self-help shelf. I love it that bookstores have self-help shelves. I don't know how I can help my... How is it self-help if I have to read it from a book? It just... Anyway, a a quick or a prolonged look there will tell us that the book I'm Okay, You're Okay does not sit on the shelf by itself. It's surrounded by books that all seem to have the same theme. And I can promise you that the majority of of the books that you'll find in the self-help section will focus on learning to love yourself as a means for boosting your self-esteem. That's the advice that they give us. And the key things those books will try to sell you is that, the, is that at heart you are a good person. So you should be good to yourself. But the sad part is that's not true. At heart I am not basically a good person. At heart I'm selfish. At heart I am basically heartbroken and in need of God's help every moment of every day. And so I'd like to prevent the disappointment that you'll face if you try to fix your mess yourself in your own strength in 2024, especially since you were not able to fix your own mess in your own strength in 2023 or 2022 either, for that matter. Because for those of us who remember the definition of insanity, Genesis will help us to find another way to deal with our mess in 2024. We're adding to our list of things that we'll learn from Genesis, so let's add a fifth thing. Number five, God makes provision every day to fix my mess. Number five, God makes provision every day to fix my mess. And here's where I have to admit that so far we've managed to be pretty discouraging as we've, as we've talked about what, uh, what we'll learn from Genesis. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm confident of the fact that I'm not selling this book very well, at least at this point. Especially since we've just now agreed that we're all a mess and that there's nothing we can do about it. Still, I I hope that you noticed that earlier when we said that we're a mess and there's nothing that we can do about it, we added the words, in your own strength. I hope that you noticed that because that makes all the difference in the world, how we look at life. I can't fix things in my own strength. But God can fix the broken things in my life by His strength. He has no shortness of strength when it comes to fixing the broken things in my life. Along with teaching us that we're a mess, Genesis is going to teach us that life really is more full of hope than we can possibly imagine. This year we'll see God's provision of clothes for Adam and Eve and God's provision of the ark during the time of the flood. We'll see God's provision of a hiding place for Lot and his family when they escape the judgment that fell on Sodom. In Genesis we'll see... God's provision of a family and a homeland for Abraham, a man to whom God made incredible promises. We'll also see God's provision of a ram to die in Isaac's place when Isaac himself should have died. Genesis will teach us about God's provision of a bride for Isaac and a new name for Jacob. We'll also see God's provision of a deliverer for Jacob's family, a man named Joseph. In fact, God's provision will become evident on almost every page, and in almost every word in the story of Genesis. What I'm trying to say is that, the truth, that you and I weren't de- the truth is that you and I weren't designed to be self-reliant. Let me say that again. You and I were not designed by God to be self-reliant. We weren't designed to be able to fix our mess on our own. The truth is God designed us to need Him every step of the way. And Genesis is going to help us understand that the happiest and wisest people on the planet are those who are convinced that they can't make it through the day without relying on God for everything. And that brings us to the sixth thing that we'll learn from Genesis this year. Another thing you'll want to write down. The only way to survive my mess is to learn to trust God's daily provision. The only way to survive my mess is to learn to trust God's daily provision. I think we all know and recognize that self-reliance and independence are two of the virtues that Americans cherish most. In the United States, we even have have set aside a holiday to celebrate independence. Americans don't like to have to depend on anyone, and we don't like seeing someone else get credit for what we have accomplished. So for Americans, learning to trust God's daily provision can be one of the most difficult parts of the Christian life. But Genesis will help us to see that we will never learn to depend on God until we first learn to stop depending on ourselves. This year in Genesis, we'll see that Adam and Eve accepted the clothes and the sacrifice that God made for them. We'll see that Noah took God at His word and built the ark that God had designed for him and told him to build. We'll see that Abra- we'll see Abraham leave Ur when God tells him to, and we'll see God declare Abraham to be righteous when Abraham decides to believe and trust God. This year in Genesis, we'll see that Abraham accepted the ram that God provided and sacrificed that ram in Isaac's place. We'll see Jacob stop wrestling with God after God completely changes Jacob from within. Genesis will story to us about how Joseph trusted God in the midst of the mess the world was in during his lifetime. And we'll see God use Joseph to prevent the deaths of many, many people. In short, Genesis will teach us, oh, hear this. Genesis will teach us what it means to be an ordinary person in the hands of an extraordinary God. And Genesis will help us to see that truth. That truth can only become a reality in our lives if we accept the Savior that God has provided for us. Think again about the ark. God warned the people of the day about the uh, uh, of Noah's day, he warned them about the judgment of the flood and then provided the ark's, ark as a means to escape that judgment. But the only people who were saved from the flood were the people who got into the ark. And in the same way, God's warned us about the judgment of hell to come. But God then provided Jesus as a means to escape hell. And in Genesis, we'll see that we have the opportunity today to be in Christ in the same way that the people who escaped the flood escaped the flood by being in the ark. Now there are many people out there who will try to tell you that hell isn't real in the same way that the people of Noah's day didn't believe that the flood was real until it started to rain. But by then it was too late. And how do we know that it was too late? Well, because God himself shut the door of the ark, reminding us once again that God is in charge, even though that's not what we're talking about on this particular point. So, some people refused to believe that the flood was coming until it was too late, but refusing to believe that the flood was coming didn't save anyone in Noah's day. And in that same way, refusing to believe that hell is real will not save people today. Those who believed in God's provision of the ark, we saved in Noah's day. And those who believe in God's provision of Jesus as our Savior, those who believe that Jesus died for them, was buried and rose again, will be saved today. But I don't want us to believe that Jesus only died to save us from hell. He died for something much, much more profound than that. And that brings us to the seventh thing that we'll learn from Genesis. Number seven, God is daily at work in our lives and daily offers us the chance to impact the lives of others. good, Good thing you did all that practice writing earlier. This is a long one. God is daily at work in our lives and daily offers us the chance to impact the life of others. Daily at work in our lives, daily gives us the chance to impact the lives of others. This impact that we can have on others is is where the joy comes from in our lives. And this is one of the most uh, evident and obvious truths in all of God's word. And we will find that that truth is everywhere expressed, everywhere we turn in the book of Genesis. And as we become more familiar with Genesis, we'll also find this truth uh, everywhere we look in our daily lives this year. There's nothing more precious in our daily lives than the opportunity that we have to impact the lives of others. Ten or so years ago when we were lighting candles on Christmas Eve, we've been doing that for more than a decade now. Ten or so years ago when we were lighting candles on Christmas Eve, Faith, my wife, had come late to the service because she'd been working that day. She got off just in time to head for work. She came here in her nurse's scrubs and was standing there in the back. I could kind of see her as the lights began to come on. She hadn't been there before that. She was standing right there near the back of the church, and someone who had been seated in the back row noticed her and shared the flame from their candle with her. She'd been late and assumed that she'd be the last to receive the light, but then someone touched her on the shoulder. The lady was standing behind her, having